What up, gang? December 23rd, 2015, the last live chat before um, Christmas. Tomorrow's Christmas Eve, 2015. Hope everyone's doing well. Pull this a little bit closer. Uh, happy to be here. Hope you're happy to be here. Thank you so much. Today on the chat, we will get to, of course, um, UFC on Fox 17 analysis. We'll get to really the year in review, uh, although there'll be, I think there'll be a live chat next week. Um, but in any case, never too early to start that. We'll get to what's coming up in 2016. I mean, really, UFC 195 is not too far away. Not this weekend, but the following, I believe, right? Something like that. So that's coming up quick, too. A um, lot to get to, even with the holidays. Still a lot to get to. So I hope you're having a wonderful holiday. I hope that... Um, you don't have to travel too far, or maybe you're already there. Maybe you're with loved ones. Either way, thank you for taking the time out to watch this. Whenever you see it, please give the video a thumbs up. That'd be cool. Uh, let folks know you're watching it. Get out there on social media and share this link um, and uh, all that good stuff. Of course, the best place to get your comments in if you're watching it live is on MMAfighting.com. Comments that turn green get uh, priority, but of course not exclusivity. Today on the chat, here we go. Just, I mean... As I mentioned before, not a known substance on Earth except, you know, uh, the stuff that killed Mary Curie. Looks this way, and I'm going to drink it. Because that's what I do. All right. Let's, uh, let's get to these questions, shall we? Very quick intro. No need to belabor the point. Oh, and just as a reminder, I get questions about it all the time, so I'm just going to start saying a little bit more. Folks are always asking, you know, is there any other way to watch besides YouTube? My preferred um, request would be that you watch on YouTube. If you can't, of course, no problem. Watch it on iTunes or listen to it on iTunes, I should, I should say. iTunes.com slash promotional malpractice. We are also on SoundCloud. SoundCloud.com slash the Luke Thomas. So all, all those will work. Um, in terms of downloads, and we've had our numbers have gone up a lot this year, so I'm very happy about that. All right, uh, first question Frankie Edgar breakdown. Uh, as of yet, I have not heard your breakdown on Edgar's shocking KO, but possibly unshocking win over Mendez. It was not in the MMA, the Monday morning analyst, or in last week's live chat. Can you give a quick breakdown of the action? Also, given McGregor's newly confirmed elite status, how do you see Edgar fight going? Yeah, so two, two questions here. Uh, it's <laughs> a funny question below that yeah so I, I i left that fight out because there was just so much to get to on last week's promotional practice a lot or excuse me last week's monday morning analyst and then i had two requests was the ryan hall and the tony ferguson stuff and so if i hadn't had requests for those i may have gotten into it but basically i watched the fight a few times i thought mendez looked pretty good mendez was you know really crushing him with the leg kicks mendez wasn't doing as much in and out movement as much fainting but he was doing some himself um, he was parrying punches. Um, you know, good job by Frankie Edgar. Every time he would get whacked with one of those kicks, Edgar would respond at least in kind. And now those shots would be blocked. But, you know, it would never let Mendez get comfortable thinking, wow, you can hit me there. I'm just going to let that slide. So, you know, both guys early had a pretty nice game plan. But if I recall correctly, the beginning of the end, or the end really, there was no like, setup for it, was that Edgar kind of faked like he was throwing a right, uh, leaned off center, 
threw a hook to the body and then a hook to the head, or at least fake like he was throwing the right, dipped out. Mendez whipped the right hand, and so Frankie ducked out and then just came around the corner and drilled him. Um, you had seen a f- semi-familiar, semi-related combination maybe 30 seconds earlier. Edgar's just a little bit better about putting punches together in combination in the pocket in quick succession. He doesn't throw a one-two necessarily, although he'll do that. He can throw a one-two-three. He can fake a one and then, you know, come upstairs for another one-two-three. He can fake and then shoot. You know, he has a lot more options with him that he just puts more pieces of offense together. I think that's what you saw there because Mendez didn't look all that bad. He just got, you know, how two guys throw right hooks and they both miss and then they come back around the corner a la Stout versus, um, uh, what's his face now? Jesus. The, the short-term memory is being affected by the amount of Diet Cola I drink. Um, Stout versus, um, who's the guy who got whored by Diego Sanchez? That fight. Ross. Ross, Ross McPherson. Ross McPherson. Jesus Christ. I can't remember his damn name now. I have to look this up because it's killing me. The Real Deal, Transit Alliance. Ross Pearson, there we go. Jesus Christ. Um, Ross Pearson, Sam Stout did that. You miss with a hook, you come back around the center. Uh, Arlovsky and Brown almost did it, but rather than missing with the right and then trying to come back with the left, Arlovsky missed with the right and then just hit him with the backhand. Remember that? There was, so there was that. And then also most famously, Dan Hardy versus Carlos Condit. It was like that, except you never really saw Edgar commit to the right hand. He was never fully overextended. He only kind of faked it. He had already gone low with the left, leaning off center. So all he had to do was just unload his hips, which were already coiled like a spring, and then drive into it in quick shorts. I mean, he didn't jump into it, but I just mean, you know, untwist and pop into it. Um, You know, so he's just really good about making you miss and finding it. There's another moment where uh, Mendez launched with a punch, missed, and Edgar timed an uppercut and landed it. So for me, Edgar has brilliant, brilliant timing. Edgar was able to get him to commit a little bit um, to one side so that he could exploit the other. And again, just the amount, just the ability Edgar has to throw punches in combination in short succession in the pocket in volume. Really, he's got he's got a lot of ability to do that. So you've seen that kind of thing before. Usually, when the guy extend, both guys extend with their with their cross, and they have to come back with their hooks. Except Edgar never really extended with his cross. He, he just kind of opened it a little bit and got Mendez to go one way. And by the way, I don't think Mendez came whipping back with his hook. That was the other problem. So it was weird. It was one of the situations that looked similar to the guys with the dueling hooks. And, you know, it's a, it, at that point, you know, if you go back to Condit versus Hardy, that's just a gun draw. Just a, who can, who's the fastest draw in the West at that point? That's all that really is. This one was a modified version of that. Mendez didn't come back with that second punch. Uh, and Edgar never really committed to the first one. So he had just an open lane for that left hook. And then, you know, stuck them, stuck them clean, man. You know, the punches that you never see coming, obviously, are the ones that hurt the most or have the most effect. Um, he's just a better inside boxer. Pretty simple, really. But I didn't think Mendez looked bad up to that point. Had a good strategy. You know, clearly had improved. Um, there was lots of positives. It's just, you know, in that short little space. McGregor or uh, Edgar will make you pay. Now, as a lean leans towards McGregor, I like McGregor just a little bit more if, over Edgar. I think he should fight Edgar. I think that's the fight to make next for for Conor McGregor. Um, you never know with the takedowns how it could go, 
But with the reach and the power and the accuracy and the timing, I just feel like by the time Edgar mounted some momentum, it might be too little too late. I could see him taking a beating clean for three rounds. And maybe, maybe, and we're just speculating, maybe let's say McGregor gets tired and taken down. But McGregor's got good defense on the ground. You know, he doesn't have much of an offensive guard to speak of, but he's got good timing there too, which is to say when you try to pass, he sets up a lot of blocking mechanisms um, to create space, to flip you over, to disrupt your base, for him to create a scramble. He's good like that. I don't think he's maybe as good on the ground as Frankie Edgar in some capacities, but the difference there is not huge, and the difference on the feet is not huge, but it's big enough. It's big enough, you know. Uh, for, for McGregor to get beaten there, he had to get beat on the inside. It's, mm, I don't know if I like his chances doing that. Luke, did you stop writing for Bloody Elbow because their comment section is somehow filled with perpetually offended social justice warriors? No, that's not the reason. <laughs> it's a funny comment, though. You know, everyone complains about the comment section of Bloody Elbow, but that uh, that is directly my fault. Because, uh, and I do the same thing on Twitter. Um, and everyone's like, oh, you can't take a joke, you can't take criticism. It's like, it's not really that. You know, you, if you are on, online, um, people are going to offer their opinion. You're, you're going to get criticism no matter what you do, even if you have aggressive blocking or uh, moderating policies. That's just an inevitable fact of the internet's existence, right? Everyone's an expert and everyone's going to tell you about it. Um, so, so that comes no matter what. The difference is that my view of my, I mean, they've taken up their own thing, but when I first was at Bloody Elbow and I was running it, my response was, if you're going to act like a jackass, you're immediately gone. Because the truth is all the most reasonable people I know in the world in my life would never do things like that. And so I thought if my friends that I know who are smart, educated, reasonable people won't do that, then there's no chance you are. Now that turns out to not be true. There are some jackasses who can contribute once they've had their lessons learned. So they've updated and modified the policies over time. But my rule is basically, for example, if I do, if I do killer picks predictions and you don't say a word, and then when I have one bad card or one mediocre card and you chime up, you're gone. You're gone because you're obviously an idiot. You're obviously one of these people who commits to um, the lowest common denominator of criticism. You're only there to just um, needle. You're not really interested in having like, hey, I'm interested in what Luke has to say. Hopefully he's interested in what I have to say. We can have an exchange. Um, And I'd be interested in what you have to say. That's not what you're doing. You're just doing it to score points. So you're gone. You're going to be gone like that. Um, I, I don't have any tolerance for it. And no one I know, again, no one I know in real life, who has a Twitter account, does that. So if you do that, there's a really strong chance you're a worthless POS who deserves to be blocked immediately. And I feel bad about it, not at all. Not not for two seconds. And and I'm glad, frankly, that Bloody Elbow has a strong moderating policy. They might, you know, do everything. I, I, I they, they do some things I wouldn't do. But it's their site. They're going to run it how they basically, basically fit. It's doing just fine. And everyone's like, oh, you keep banning people. People won't sign up. They have record signups every single day. It's just totally not true. Um, the only challenge of moderating is that to really keep it clean and have the discussions be as productive as possible, you have to have a, you have to have a ton of people moderating it, and that can be a challenge. But other than that, there's no there's no there's no downside to it, none, zero. All those arguments about that it chases people away is simply not true. Someone says. Uh, 
in relation to McGregor, Edgar just has to dive under that straight left and throw a double. Edgar landed all three punches in that fight ending combination against Mendez. Not not all three. He landed some single shots and ducked the head beautifully. Yeah, that's true. But um, it's also a lot easier to get into kind of range with Mendez and Nelson McGregor. All right. Dominic Cruz commentating. But look, maybe Edgar wins. I don't know. I mean, I'm just giving you my, my impressions of it. I, maybe. I think I, I think you need to make the Edgar fight because I don't think we're any, we're, we're long past the how would McGregor do against a wrestler stage. But with any challenge, now that he's champion, you're going to say, okay, what about the unique makeup of um, this particular guy? Right? You would ask that with anybody. Hey, when Jose Aldo fought um, Ricardo Lamas, you didn't like Lamas's chances, but you were looking at some of the things he could do differently. When he fought Edgar, you were saying, you know, maybe there's this, there's that, there's this together in combination, and these things can, can have an effect. And, and so you're always looking at the particular makeup. It is interesting to note that the goalposts on McGregor's uh, weaknesses have been shifted and moved back considerably to the point now where, like any archetype, any 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 um, you know, how would he do against a wrestler boxer? These are these are questions you ask when you're talking about someone at Sage Northcutt's level, right? Where he's on the up and up, got a lot of potential. Hell, maybe one day he'll be a champion. But you know, you're still talking about putting the pieces of his game together. We are since past that with McGregor to a very considerable extent, obviously. Um, but, you know, look, there are some questions to be asked about Frankie Edgar. He can take a tremendous shot. We know his cardio won't fade. He's fought bigger guys before. Obviously, he can mix in the wrestling and the striking pretty well. You know, for his part, he has good movement in and out boxing. I think all these things are true, you know. So, um, in the end, I think the power of and accuracy and timing of McGregor might be too much. But, hey, it's worth you know, you're a, you're a champion. Get out there and defend your title. I'm completely in favor of that of that logic of that rule of thumb. You know, even if everyone thinks it's a foregone conclusion, get out there and defend it. So, sure, I think we should see that fight. You should give Frank Yeager a shot. You know, I think if nothing else, you can say, "Geez, man, what does Frank Yeager got to do to get a title shot around here?" Now, if McGregor or goes up to lightweight and then abandons the weight class and relinquishes his title, I guess he'll get it. But at this point, a an Aldo Edgar rematch doesn't quite feel the same. Your boy is parched today. Uh, Dominic Cruz commentating. What were your thoughts on the three-man commentating team used for parts of the Fox show this past weekend? I personally really enjoyed it. I thought Dominic did a great job, and it really felt like it pumped some new life into the broadcast. Do you expect this is something we are likely to see more in the future, and why do you think the UFC decided to do this? Are they perhaps setting up a potential replacement for Joe Rogan, who has recently been rumored to be leaving next year? Well, if they did that, it's not like Cruz would jump into the uh, fire. I mean, he still has a career in fighting he wants to continue, I'm assuming, at least to the extent possible. You know, if you take up Joe Rogan's job, you're traveling a lot. That's just not conducive to being a champion. He's fighting for the title when he comes back. So I don't know if it's a direct substitution grooming, although there's probably some interest there to see you know, how he would do and how he would sound and things like that. So for folks who may have missed it, Cruz did the fight pass portion portion of the card. He didn't touch any of the Fox Sports 1 or Fox except for the main event. So I think four fights in total. You didn't really get a sense of it when we talked in the main event because it was only 66 seconds. So there's that. But as for the fight pass portion of the card, I thought he was absolutely phenomenal. What a breath of fresh air. You know, Joe Rogan has a lot of strengths as a commentator. 
And one was that he has a keen insight into a fighter's mind. He has a great ability for the average and even, you know, dedicated fan to contextualize a moment. And yes, he goes overboard or, you know, Ronda Rousey's only once ever. Like, no one's perfect. And he certainly has his fair share of um, cliches or overwrought descriptions. Uh, You know, there's plenty of criticisms to make of him. But if we're talking about his strengths, I think his strengths are that he has a good degree of technical acumen, black belt under, uh, I think, Hagen Machado in the gi, black belt under Eddie Bravo, no gi, um, you know, obviously a decorated Taekwondo competitor. So he has an understanding. He can, he can, he can translate the language of fighting to the, you know, UFC viewer uh, at a variety of levels, you know, very casual to, you know, to some cases, hardcore. He's got a good ability to grasp the moment and contextualize it when he's strong. Um, you know, like when Holly Holm won, um, he's an excellent broadcaster in the, in its own right. Like he's not nervous on TV. He speaks in a very clear, concise way for the most part. So he's got a lot of strengths related to broadcasting that I think really translate well and, and have served the UFC's interest, um, uh, a lot, very considerably. But if we're just talking knowledge for knowledge, I don't think anyone really tops Dominic Cruz uh, that I know of. I mean, maybe, you know, Greg Jackson might or something like that. But in terms of the ability to articulate himself with it, in you know, this is how Dominic Cruz thinks. Dominic Cruz, you know, uh, he's like Neo, right? Like when he looks out, he doesn't see four walls and a door. He sees the code dropping from the sky. That's, that's kind of how he sees things. He sees fighting exactly the same way. It is very scientific for him. It is all about a process. It is all about understanding mechanics. It is all about understanding um, biology, psychology to an extent, and, and and to the best way in which you can both compartmentalize it and then synthesize it all back together. He's got all of it, man. He's got he's got all of it. So in that sense, there was just a degree of technical sophistication that while I think Rogan is very technically sophisticated and understands it, maybe not he doesn't that's not his strength to that same extent. Um, as evidenced by um, Dominic Cruz. So, you know, he, we were talking about sitting back for the choke and how you know it's tight and on the on the uh, the rematch between Hassan and, and, and Luque and um, um, even the Ganu fight where he was talking about, you know, heavyweights don't th- throw in four or five punch combinations. He just talks about fighting very, very scientifically. Um, is that what UFC audiences want? Maybe. Maybe. I think Brian Stan does that too, um, but Brian Stan is also, I would argue, a slightly more polished, not, not even slightly, a more polished broadcaster than Dominic Cruz. That's one knock on Dominic Cruz. It's not his knowledge. It's not that he's bad on camera. He's fantastic on camera. He's great. Um, is he the best commentator they have on camera in terms of his broadcasting ability? The How, how parsimonious is his language? Um, how specific is he in a brief moment? How good is his timing to get in, make his point, and get out? In that sense, he's very, very good. He's not the best on the team. In that sense, Brian Stan is the best on the team. But, you know, you're talking about technical specificity and helping you understand the greater technical contexts of what you're working with. Uh, he is peerless. He is absolutely peerless. All right. Uh... Nate Diaz, someone says, it's not a rumor. Joe has said himself, yes, everyone, everyone, please understand. I read MMA news too. 
I happen to be an editor at the arguably the biggest MMA site on the internet. I am more than aware that Joe Rogan has said by August when his contract is up, he may be done. That does not mean that Dominic Cruz is interested in taking on Rogan's responsibilities. You see how the two are separate, right? I understand Rogan's going. That does not mean that the two commentating on one event means that one's going to sub in for the other one when the other one has a title fight in what? A month, a month and a half? Unless he just plans out of nowhere to abandon his title or, or, or some point come August, uh, assuming he wins. I have a very hard time believing that's the case. So understand that. Understand that I read the news. Nate Diaz makes 20 and 20, your reaction. How does that make any sense? Um, yeah, he... It's, it's obviously abysmally low for a fighter of his caliber and for a fighter that can give you big money fights in ways that other fighters can't. Everyone was like, you know, Nate did this to himself. How many fighters you know can be on the outs with management, take time off after losing a bunch of fights, come back, get a highly ranked fighter, win, and have everyone, like, super excited again, talking about he should fight the maybe the most exciting guy in the sport right now. You know, so this idea that like you can look at Nate Diaz's resume and get a full grasp of what he offers as a fighter on your roster is just so ludicrous as to not be worth taking seriously for two seconds. If you're somebody who's going to come back and be like, the guy just bitches all the time, and he's what is his record right now? Is he uh, most recent record? Let me see. This is his first win in a while. Thirty years old too, so he's got a little time left. You're one of these donks who's like, he's you know, he's two for his last five. His last one before this one was Gray Maynard. Sick of him complaining. You're not to be taken seriously because you simply don't have a grasp of what the value is that's being provided here. Um, you don't understand the nature of Diaz, his appeal, his uh, ability to be fitted into a number of different situations despite going two and five in his last five, excuse me, two and three in his last five. Um, okay. So let's just establish that as for the 20 and 20, let me just make a point here. <coughs> let me just make a point here about some of these contracts that are happening, because if you look at the history of Diaz's and what happened with him, he took a gamble, uh, and it blew up in his face. So he wound up getting a, a bad contract. Um, you know, you see, and, and this relates in part to what's happening with Benson Henderson or Aljamain Sterling. To, to, they're different circumstances, but just understand that they're, what you're seeing are fighters taking great risk um, to maximize contractual value. So in the case of Henderson or Sterling or Overeem, they won, and now that gives them great leverage. In the case of Kaufman, she lost. That doesn't. But it just is so illustrative to me that people are like, what's her value? What's, what's their value? Sage Northcutt has a big old value. Uh, <laughs> number one, let's just address this. Number one, if you live in an environment where fighters are taking extraordinary risk to bump their pay, you're already dealing with an unfair environment. Now, look, there's always going to be negotiations and there's always going to be leverage. We live in a leverage world. But when you see fighters going to these extraordinary lengths where it's, I won't say it's all or nothing. I mean, $40,000 is nothing to sneeze at. 
but it is hardly a lot of money um, when you take out taxes and everything else. It is certainly not representative of the level of professional athlete we are talking about in Nate Diaz. When you see these guys going up there and flipping coins um, in terms of the chances they are taking to get a bigger contract, uh, you know, and not bigger contract like $2 million to $4 million. We're talking about, you know, uh, five figures to six figures, you know, a very small portion of the overall revenue that you, Zufa generates. Then you know you are dealing with an environment where they don't have a ton of leverage to begin with. I mean, Kirk Cousins, who's the quarterback here in D.C., started the season as not the starter, got subbed in, and around week six, they were saying, you know, he may get dumped for Colt McCoy. Is he even going to be able to finish out the season? Turns around, has a few, I'll say more than that, has like five, six nice weeks in a row. Is putting up some good numbers, you know. Uh, and now they're talking about him maybe getting $18 million, $19 million a year on a five-year deal. You know, 5 and 75 or something, maybe, maybe even more. Right? That's what we're talking about here. So there's going to be negotiations there. Right? The guys, you know, he's going to um, play the best he can to give himself the opportunity in the offseason to either get franchise tagged or, or maybe go all the way into free agency or whatever the case may be. But look at the numbers we're talking about here. You know, the, the, these guys are not put into these desperation situations, you know, where it's all or nothing. If Overeem had lost, I mean, Overeem's in a bit of a better position because if he goes to Bellator, um, he has a working relationship with Scott Coker previously. He can do kickboxing over there to some extent. So um, his situation's not as dire, but, you know, you just get the idea that, like, we're talking about a deeply, deeply, deeply divided or a situation where fighters simply don't have much leverage. And so they have to resort to these extraordinary measures to give themselves any kind of hope of getting a few extra dollars. That should just tell you everything. So, I mean, I saw Brendan Schaub blame bad management for Nate Diaz. Maybe that's a decent argument. I certainly wouldn't argue too much against it. Um, you know, uh, you could say Nate Diaz has made his own fair share of mistakes and to an extent he has. Um, but generally, just understand the larger, broader picture here. We're talking about a situation where these guys have next to no leverage, so they're putting themselves in these skydiving situations and hoping the parachute opens. To me, this is this is all you need to understand about the mechanics of value here. Whatever you think a fighter is worth in value, you are only talking about the conditions in which they operate, not some absolute numerical value that you plucked from God as he spoke to you in a dream. You are not Nicolas Maduro, who just happened to see a bird land on a branch, and the bird talked to you, and the bird said, Sage Northcutt is worth 100000 to show and 100000 to win. Also, look at the nature of contracts. you got show and win money. You think Mayweather has show and win money? No, sir. He has money. He's got guaranteed money up front, and then whatever else is bonus on top of that from pay-per-view sales. And his guarantees are astronomically high, $40, $70, 80000000 million. Right? So, so just understand the, the, the context here. You are talking about a guy being like, well, he made a mistake with his contract because it's very hard to get it right. It's very, very, very difficult to get it right when you have that little leverage. You're willing to just swallow a bomb and hope it doesn't detonate. You know, it's like, it's just, it's crazy to me that we have these conversations like this. Nate Diaz isn't worth as much as stage, nor cut. You know, it's like, it's like, do you even understand the words that are coming out of your mouth? 
All you need to know is we are operating in just one kind of environment. And were there a different kind of environment, the language around which we talk about this issue completely and totally changes. This is just now. This is not the. This is not everything. This is just the nature of the circumstances. And I got news for you. It benefits one group more than another. And it's not the fighters who are winning in this leverage battle. Just so that's clear. Long-ass question, but it's a good one. Uh, the shocking decline of Team Alpha Male and Nova Uniao. Uh, it was only last year there's renowned gyms, Team Alpha Male and Team Nova Uniao had very the very best fighters in the world with lower weight classes, but despite lacking the championship belt, Alpha Males, blah, 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 blah. Fast forward to 2015, Nova Uniao's elite fighters have a combined record of 4-9 this year, which includes Aldo and Dantes losing both their world championships. Alpha Male has gone 1-5 in the past couple of weeks. Chad Mendez, Van Zant, Lance Palmer, Danny Castillo. Oh, well, Lance Palmer got screwed, but okay. Uh, and Danny Castillo definitively losing their matches. Again, Lance Palmer didn't definitively lose anything. The gym clearly hasn't been the same since the loss of Dwayne Lubbock and TJ Dillashaw, blah, blah, blah. What are your thoughts on the recent decline of Team Alpha Male and Nova Uniao, and what might their recent losing streaks be attributed to, in your opinion? I don't know the answer to this. Um, if you talk to Lance Palmer, Lance Palmer did a scrum after his loss at uh, World Series of Fighting 26. Look, you can easily attribute Lance Palmer's loss to um, um, bad judging. I think there's an age issue with Team Alpha Male. Um, there are guys that you know them for, your Benavidez is, your, um, your Fabers, your uh, Mendez is. These guys are getting a little bit older. Not, they're not old, but they're aging out. But to me, the biggest thing is when you watch, for example, when you watch your Faber, like, um, you can tell he never clicked with Dwayne Ludwig. You can just tell because he is the only guy who still basically strikes the same. Now, look, um, he, he's still a phenomenal fighter. He's a phenomenal talent. You, you would be lucky to have the kind of career that Uriah Faber has had. Truly, truly. You, if you have a, if you, if your career is over and you can say my career was basically equivalent to Uriah Faber's, dude, you won. Like you had a phenomenal, you had a phenomenal run. But okay, when you watch him compete, what do I see? I see a guy who just doesn't have a lot of the more common techniques of striking you see among your better strikers today. That being the ability to work behind a jab, that being in and out movement, that being movement within the pocket itself, that being he does faint, but we see what Faber does a lot of is he just kind of faints, 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 and then explodes into range. There's no ability to, to navigate range more fluidly um, or in angles, right? It's just a lot of this, 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 faint, 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 and then jump, you know, it's a it's a lot of that, and to me, that just indicates he never really benefited from having a coach, um, you know, go over the, some of the things that he could be improved upon. It's not that his striking is poor. It's just there's another developmental level to it he hasn't quite reached, and at 35, 36, I don't know how accessible that is. And you, everyone, I get everyone's going to be like, TJ Dillashaw's a snake in the grass, or maybe TJ Dillashaw is smart. And you know what's going to kill me about this too, man, is because you know what's going to happen, and it may have nothing to do with it. We don't know. It may have everything to do with it. It may have nothing to do with it. But you got Dillashaw in this fight with Cruz. I guarantee you if he loses, even though it may have nothing to do with it, no discernible way in which to really truly know, everyone's going to attribute a loss. Should it happen, 
to the move to a new team. Now, it's true that even if he wins and it has nothing to do with that, he might also still get credit for the team move. So there's that too. But for sure, if he gets snuffed out in that fight, everyone in their brother is going to mention the fact, well, he should have stayed at Alpha Male. Really? That's where he would have gotten the best striking training imaginable is there? You can get a lot of wonderful, 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 wonderful things at Team Alpha Male. A sense of community, a, a, a brotherhood of guys who compete just like you, who have a lot of similar skill sets. They got some of the best guillotine series in the game. Unbelievable scramblers. And I can go on and on and on and on and on. I wouldn't point to it as a place you can get the best striking on earth. I really wouldn't. I really wouldn't. And that's going to be a fight with – you think Dominic Cruz is going to sit there and try and wrestle with him? I mean, only on his terms. <laughs> Come on, y'all. It's just, it's just crazy to me. But it's going to happen. It's going to happen. So, to me, there's just been a technical gap that they that they haven't quite overcome. Um, as for Nova Unyao, I don't know what the answer to that is. I, I, I refrain from commenting without – really having a clear sense of things. Again, those guys are getting older too. You know, they had long reigns of dominance. I really feel like, and I, I can't I can't be certain about this, I really feel like, and it's not just McGregor, it's a lot of guys, we're entering a new phase of striking in MMA. And I don't mean, I don't mean that in the, there was a, there was a time there where what we were doing was we had all this tie boxing and we were adding pieces around it. And you had a guy with a Taekwondo background and he would add, different tricks to it and so people thought tie boxing plus creativity is the future of striking and what i think you're seeing is quite the opposite you're seeing some of that of course you know being unpredictable in a certain way but really what i think you're seeing is you're seeing a lot more soundness of technical fundamentals about timing about angular movement about um creating uh uh, anticipation and not acting on it. Um, things that boxers do, really. It's less a build off of kickboxing, although there's that too, of course, but just some of the things that boxing holds dear. It's not, when I say boxing, I don't mean jab, cross, and and things you look at on Western boxing. I mean some of the precepts that, that, that bind boxing um, um, to its values. I think that's what you're seeing. And as far as I can tell, that's something that heretofore, I'm not saying the guys at Team Alpha Mill can't strike. They're decorated fighters, man, but that's not their strong suit, as I can tell. There are other things that are strong suits. Again, they got the best guillotine series in the game as a team. Fact. You know who told me that? Dylan Dennis, who's got incredible guillotines. So you know that's that's for real. But um, there's just a gap there, man. There's just a gap. Uh, what do you think about Lance Palmer's comments about joining TJ at Team Elevation? Yeah, he kind of hinted at it. So is he a snake in the grass now too? You can't have it both ways. You can't look at Team Alpha Male and say, wow, they've got these obvious technical gaps, which many of you say. I'm not the only one out here saying it. And then say, oh, TJ shouldn't leave. Well, which is it? Should he stay at a place despite recognizing the obvious limitations? For what? So you won't call him a snake? That's not very smart now, is it? Um, let's see here. 
Well, it says, what about Dan Hardy uh, replacing Joe Rogan? I'd take it. I love Dan Hardy as a commentator. I think he's awesome. Uh, I'll get to this later. I'll get to this later. Okay. Um, what are your thoughts on potential weight division changes proposed by the uh, California Athletic Commission's weight cutting summit last week? Um, I think they're fine for – I don't mind if they change everything to one like in 10-pound in, in increments, so 25, 35, 45, 55, 65, 75. They had 195, um, and I think there was another one in like two, 235 or 225, so I, I haven't pulled them all up. But um, generally speaking, below 185, I'm in favor of that. But beyond that, I'm not. Uh, what do you think the chances of seeing the changes implemented by the UFC sometime in the future? Fairly low. Fairly low for now. Inevitably, maybe. Understand, and we'll get to this one championship weight cutting stuff because I saw there was a question about it earlier. Understand that, and I made this point explicit here on this chat, um, there are many solutions to the weight cutting problem in theory. One of them in theory is that you just expand the number of weight classes, but that has serious promotional consequences, which is why promotions are reluctant, pardon me, to do it. They would do it a lot quicker if there weren't as many clear and obvious drawbacks to the problem. All right, so just keep that in mind. What direction do you see Connor going for his next fight? I don't know what direction he's going to go. Obviously, if he stays at 145, Aldo doesn't, I don't think Aldo gets an immediate rematch. I mean, you can make all the arguments you want about Deserved. Deserved has very little to do with what's going to actually happen. The Edgar matchup feels fresher anyway. Um, um, if he goes to 155, I'd like to see him against Nate Diaz. Just for the F of it. <laughs> right? Spider Anderson went up to one or 205. You know, he wasn't fighting the best right away. He wasn't trying to go for two titles, and they were still compelling as hell. Now, maybe McGregor has different designs. That, like Being a two-division champ is like incredibly important to him. Okay, you know, let's see how you look against the other guys first. Let's see how you look against the, um, you know, the analog to whatever James Irvin or uh, Forrest Griffin is. And then we can talk about something else. But for me, that's kind of the fun, the fun thing to see. And Merry Christmas to you guys as well. Yin Jacek, Gedalia, and UFC. Recently, I've seen Yin Jacek state several times after fighting five times in approximately 15 months, which is very impressive, that she wants to take a little break until the summer next year to let her body heal. Yeah, White keeps insisting she will fight Gedalia next, who last fought August 1st and has only fought once in the same time span. So out of curiosity, how do you see the situation being resolved? Oh, I don't know. That's this just too hard to... Uh, and also, there's rumors that they're going to be in the ultimate fighter, you know. Um, so that's just too, that's too hard to speculate. I don't think Adelia is in a position to like hardball right now. And that means she is in a sense, but she seems to be very much enjoying being a, uh, a company man. Barbus is here. He got a haircut. I don't like the haircut. They left his face and neck long and then like cut the rest of his body short. And he's a terrier, but he's not like he's a mixed terrier of something. I don't know. So he looks kind of weird. What's up, buddy? I'll pull them up here before we cut the chat off. Who do you want to see Rockhold face next? Romero 
I want to see that fight. And then I want to see Weidman. Get, I want to see Weidman earn his way back. And maybe he does that with one fight. I don't know. But I want Rockhold and Weidman need to tangle again. They don't need to tangle right away. For me, man, when you get a fight like that where it was close for a little bit, it was kind of back and forth, and then one guy eventually takes over, that to me is very indicative of how it would go if they fought again in close proximity. Now, MMA is crazy. A big punch can land or something like that. But if you know two guys are kind of competing and they're going back, back and forth, and then eventually one just kind of really takes over in a very dominant way, that wasn't a wild swing of momentum. That was just, you know a few bumps on the takeoff, but the takeoff's happening. That's kind of how I see it. Um, and I don't feel like without some changes and adjustments and time to really implement them, we can really say, def- you know, we can really inspire confidence in Wyman's chances in an immediate rematch. If I These guys all want immediate rematches because they want to get their titles back, and I understand that there's a lot of prestige and value and um, – honor and everything there's so much benefit to being a champion i get that but you don't get a lot of chances in the ufc to get tune-up fights take them if i have one recommendation to fighters take them if you lose your title take a tune-up fight go and work on things and get a chance against a guy you know you can beat and work on them in that fight and your title shot will be there. And, of course, everything is not as simple as that. The guy you may want to fight, the UFC may want you to fight as well because what if he loses and then you lose the money rematch? Life is complicated. All I'm saying is should an opportunity arise to get a tune-up fight in the Ultimate Fighting Championship, do not be so foolish as to not take that opportunity seriously. Tune-up fights have a ton of value. They are extraordinarily rare at the highest level of mixed martial arts. Um and they, they are worth it. They are worth it. Uh, you're asking about fighters missing weight. Talking about Charles Oliveira. Yeah, I mean, there's a case for additional penalties to be to be added there. The problem with the weight cutting stuff is you got to be very careful what kind of punishment you give. You don't want to put them in a dire situation to, you want the punishment to hurt, but not be so severe that it becomes something that they do everything possible to avoid. Um, You still have to make it a little bit of a bitter pill to swallow. Good question. Did we see the last of Alistair Overeem in the UFC? I'm a huge fan of Overeem, but I'm scared last weekend was his last UFC fight. After seeing his payout, I don't see the UFC doing any better. When he joined back in 2011, he had so much hype. He was a K1 champion, two heavyweight titles, a great documentary, and that massive body. Jesus, you wanna, are you a fan of him? You want to bang him. His recent three-win streak is impressive, but I don't think it's enough. My question to you is, is his 5-3 and three UFC record enough to have a substantial pay increase, as or was he overvalued in 2011? Uh, overvalued relative to what, you know? But... Um, to the, to the rest of the market, maybe. But, you know, I'm glad he got paid the way he did. And um, to answer your question, it's a very interesting one. First of all, that was the, uh, of the four picks on the main card, that was the only one I got wrong. I thought that was one of the ones I was guaranteed to get right, too, you know. The Nate Diaz one, I was, like, biting my nails over a little bit. Um, and the same one with the uh, random Marcos fight, you know. Um, but... I thought for sure Overeem would, would go down. You know, I didn't think Overeem's ability to take a shot was all that great. And um, 
you know, JDS had the hand speed and the power, and it just never worked out that way. Um, by the way, as a side note, I was having a debate online, not a debate, like a discussion online with um, Daniel Roberts, who from Deadspin, and he was saying, you know, I don't know how Rousey's going to recover from a knockout like that. You know, fighters usually don't recover. And I was thinking to myself, I've seen plenty of people recover from knockouts like that in MMA. Boxing has this weird mythology around knockouts that I don't, that MMA has to me very much challenged the orthodoxy of, Oh, this guy got flatlined. Well, certainly if you get flatlined in a boxing match, it's bad. Uh, on top of that, you can sort of add to the fact that, um, you know, it's a narrower universe. If it exploits some kind of weakness, then that person will always be sort of aware of it. Uh, and other opponents can exploit it. So there are, there are reasons why they're a little bit more trending in that direction in terms of thought. But in MMA, I've seen Michael Bisping come back from, I mean, that horrible knockout. Overeem, man. Look at over, I mean, Overeem's been slept. You know, brutal knockout by Chuck Liddell. Horrible knockout by uh, Shogun Hua. Um, and you can go on and on from there. You know, he's been he's been flatlined a number of times. Uh, and he's come back. It's just not the same thing. And maybe that's a Dutch thing, you know, in that case. I don't really know. But um, the argument that, like, you can get starched real badly and then it affects you mentally for the rest of your career. That happens sometimes, but not not really. Not, not in MMA, not to the same extent. And as I mentioned before, I kind of thought, wow, Overeem would be a really good fit for Bellator, you know. Um, they have no one in their heavyweight division who could really challenge him. He could get a title there. Uh, uh, it'd be a fun fight. Um, you could get McGeary to go up and fight him in heavyweight. It'd be a fun little striking contest. Um, there'd be a lot you could do with him there. You could put him in the kickboxing fights for any kind of dynamite show. Um, but, you know, if you look at the heavyweight division in the UFC, it's really thin. They don't have a lot of title contenders. If Kane loses again and Verdum's at the top there, uh, I'm not saying that the, the first Verdum versus Overeem fight blew your skirt up, but nevertheless, that's a compelling fight you can sell for the most part. You know, these different guys in different parts of their lives and their um, careers, and it'd be an interesting striking battle, actually, I think, because, you know, certainly you can argue that is a much better striker, but, um, you know, UFC needs him, I think, to sell some contenders. Um. Bellator needs him more, but can Bellator pay for him more? Does he want to go to Bellator? Um, there's a lot of questions there. There's a lot of questions there. Why isn't McGregor Edgar a done deal? I have no idea. True false. Honor has a championship belt at the end of 2016. I'll say true. Wyman becomes a champion in the UFC again. Wow. Hmm. I will say false, but I don't know. That's a tough one. Rousey will fight beyond 2016. I will say true. Dos Santos turns things around and becomes a contender again. I think that one is very much false. Been wrong about heavyweight contenders before, e.g. Arlovsky, but um, yeah. Dos Santos just looks a little bit shop-worn at this point. And has almost like an anachronistic game plan. Someone's asking, Luke, um, you didn't get to it last week. So what did you think about the UFC releasing the locker room footage of UFC 194? I had mixed emotions as I'm all for the backstage content. 
but thought it was kind of distasteful to show Aldo in his darkest hour. How'd you feel about it? Man, I'm really torn on this one for the reasons that you are too. You know, people mentioned they, they didn't do this for Rousey. You know, to what extent did they have the capability back there? I, I don't know. You know, um, part of this is whether or not these cameras, these rooms are outfitted in this way, but whatever. I mean, maybe they all are. Let's assume they all are. So, you know, there's an, a question of unfair treatment and unequal treatment in that regard. Um, and I'm and I'm sympathetic to all those arguments. I wouldn't really argue against them at all. I think they're very strong. But I have to say, if I'm just speaking honestly, and it's very easy for me to say this because it's not my life, you know, I'm almost glad that that got aired. Um, was it distasteful? Maybe. Was it unfair? Maybe. Again, I'm not going to argue too much against it. But I always feel like fans have such a sanitized version. Fans fans don't, understandably, they're, they're fans. They see everything at a distance. They see wins at a distance. They see life through a fighter's Instagram account. Or when I see them at a Q&A, they don't really see these guys live, day in, day out. And the UFC, to their credit, not so much this thing, but let's say embedded or something else. They try and give fighters and fans as much connectivity as possible, you know, while still respecting privacy to some extent too. Okay. But here's all I'm saying. Um, I would just be here lying to you if I said that I didn't think there was some value in showing that. That doesn't mean it should have been shown. That doesn't mean all the arguments that you or someone else may have against showing it are wrong. I, I, I'm not here to challenge him. I'm just trying to tell you how I feel internally. I think it's good that fans see that. And that's easy for me to say because I'm not Aldo's brother or father or teammate or coach. But as just a outside observer, when I see something like that, I think to myself, fans need to know the consequence of loss. You know, it's very easy to talk about a guy as this uh, disembodied something else, this other, this thing you only see through a computer or TV screen. Um, it is very hard to to grasp the the just the depths of despair that some of these guys have to tangle with to get back out there and compete again. Everyone thinks it's a matter of how good is your left straight and your guard. It is. It is that. It is also about simply dealing with absolute and unequivocal devastation. I thought Ronda Rousey had one of the more poignant points um, in that interview she did uh, with ESPN, her first one after getting KO'd. She said she was. It wasn't just that she lost; she was mourning the idea of not of who she was or that person that would retire undefeated and go on and sail into the sunset. They were, she was like, they were mourning the death of that person. These things, I'm not going to put them on par with losing a family member. Certainly these losses, like the kind Aldo had, they will define these guys, not just in terms of what you think about them, but in terms of what they think about themselves and how they understand their place in the world. And so I don't think fans have a lot of understanding about that. The backlash against Rousey was, I think in part driven by the fact that she had talked a huge smack, uh, she had done a lot of smack talk. She 
got her uh, fans saw it as her getting her comeuppance and to an extent right and she had this big brash personality aldo kind of kept quiet you know he would respond to mcgregor here and there but you know we and he had some interviews that were in brazil they were a little more testy but basically he didn't do any of that but i also feel like you saw a lot more people at least in the online digital community expressing public genuine heartfelt sorrow for the guy a decorated champion undefeated for a decade i mean you just think about how hard that is to do it's just an insane level of accomplishment all comes crashing to an end in 13 seconds and the amount of despair he has to deal with and and reflection and and um self-loathing and everything else that goes with that i think you saw a lot more people come into his rescue as a consequence um and maybe I'm not saying that he benefited from it because if you value your privacy, then there is no benefit that comes from having it invaded. But I don't know. There's just a part of me that feels like a fans need to see it. And B I I feel like maybe I won't go to my grave arguing this, but I, I get a general sense that there was a little bit more sympathy for him. Not merely because, you know, he's not this brash, angry character in your face who got his comeuppance at the hands of a, uh, you know, a, a hardworking, upstart but also that they saw that oh my god man look at the cost this poor guy had to pay for this you know this just seems life is tough you know even for a guy who just made a bunch of money um so so if i'm just being honest with you i'm I'm not going to argue that it was it was great that they released it and i'm so happy i see a little bit of value in it Valentina Shevchenko, what'd you think of her performance being the number five? I addressed this on the Monday Morning Analyst. Um, 2005's light heavyweights versus 2015's middleweights. How far has the game come? Just for fun, how do you see it if, in general if the best UFC light heavyweights from 2005 matched up with the two, 2015 middleweights, assuming the fight is at 205? So we've got middleweights who are going to be competing at light heavyweight. Has the game some come so far? that you could see middleweights from today beating light heavyweights from 2005. So here are your 2005 light heavyweights. Liddell, Couture, Ortiz. Here are your middleweights, Rockhold, Weidman, and Romero. I'd favor all those middleweights over all those light heavyweights. Um, okay. Great question. Here we go. The First of all, it's no longer one FC. It's just one. One championship. That's what it's called. Thoughts on their new uh, weigh-in program? Okay, there's many, many components to this, and I can't get into all of them here on this chat. But suffice to say, go read one championship's new weight-cutting policy, weigh-in policy. The general rule is this. I'll just read a couple of these. There's no more IVs allowed. Uh, Athletes must submit their current walking weight and daily training weight regularly. Athletes will input and track their daily weight online via a dedicated web portal. Athletes may input data weekly, but must not include daily weight. But must include daily weights. Really, you're gonna put in daily weights on a web portal? Athletes must be assigned to their weight class based on collated data and random weight checks. Who's gonna do random weight checks in Cambodia? But whatever. Athletes are not allowed to drop a weight class in less than eight weeks out from an event. I like that. That's good. During fight week, weights are checked daily. That's fine. Urine-specific gravity will also be checked the day after arrival and three hours prior to the event. Athletes must be within the weight class and pass specific gravity hydration tests all week up to three hours before the event. I'm fine with that. 
catch weights uh, are allowed. However, an athlete uh, with a higher weight will not be heavier than 105% of the lighter weight's opponent. Uh, one will conduct random weight checks on athletes at our discretion. I don't know what that means. Athletes may petition to change weight classes outside the eight-week competition zone and must be within their new desired weight at that time. In addition, athletes must pass a, a specific gravity test when their weight is within the limits of the newly petitioned weight class, blah, 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 blah. Okay, and it goes on from there. But this is the general gist. Um, so look, <laughs> I'm glad they're trying something. Uh, I have a ton of questions about this. I haven't had a time to think about it very much. It only came out today. You're going to have very, you know, to get something right, you have to think and study it for a while. So all I'm giving you is, you know, I wouldn't call it my immediate reaction, but pretty close to immediate. I got a lot of questions about this. Number one, they're independent contractors. From where does one get the authority to do this? Number two, good question raised on Twitter uh, to me. If athletes don't want to be in this kind of, program can they opt out of their contracts i suspect not and again where does one get the authority to do this everyone doesn't care about contractual rights i'm sorry they're all related fighters should get paid more good then let's give them the kind of contracts they have some discretion over which means we have to redo drug testing and we have to redo weight cutting um part of a package deal you're not going to get one without the other in my view but okay neither here nor there um, there's a bigger purpose here. They had a guy die trying to make weight cutting for their organization. And a buddy of mine who was a Muay Thai instructor who has done some, um, work in martial arts over in East Asia, uh, sent me this. And I thought it was a very smart comment that he made. Again, it's the broader context here. You know, they didn't ask the athletes about their input as far as I can tell, number one. Number two, what are they going to do with all their existing weight classes? Are they going to just change them all? Because otherwise, a bunch of their champions have to all vacate their titles unless you just change all the weight classes up, which I guess they can do, but that makes it weird. Um, are they going to add more weight classes? It doesn't sound like they will. But here's a buddy of mine. Him, and he has worked in all parts of the Asian world re more, most recently. Um, I've known him for almost a decade, has been training Muay Thai forever, has trained a bunch of guys. And here's what he says. Most of the territories that one is targeting, so Myanmar, China, Indonesia, don't even have basic resources or knowledge that their Western counterparts have in terms of proper weight cutting or the former wrestlers that can educate fighters on a larger scale. A lot of their cards feature fighters making their MMA debut. The death of a fighter is also a major PR issue since MMA is considered a new sport in China who may consider to be uh, who may consider it to be barbaric and could set the sport back years there. You can't compare one's you can't compare one championship to develop markets and they have to do things differently to survive and grow the sport. So so there's a lot of things going on there. You have a bunch of fighters who simply, you know, we have problems here with weight cutting. But it's, to me, it's not coincidental. The two last weight-cutting deaths that I'm aware of took place in Brazil and now in, I guess, what was the last one? The Philippines by a Chinese fighter. Now, guys in the UFC have gone to the hospital, and that's bad. I'm not saying that's nothing to, to look past. But um, understand that they're operating in a different environment here. To me, this is – I'm not – I don't want to dismiss one trying to do something about weight-cutting 
but I also don't want to exclude from the possibility of conversation. This is a lot of face saving by them. Done without any acknowledgement of their fighters or any in any kind of concert or any kind of agreement. Um, it's just forced on them. Not every fighter hates cutting weight. Not all forms of weight cutting are the worst things in the world. A little bit of weight cutting is frankly not that big a deal, statistically speaking. It's really not. Um, now, again, that debate gets a little hairy when you start getting the specifics of how many pounds, how late per weight class, and how that weight is cut. Um, but it's not true that, you know, for a light heavyweight, cutting five pounds is this uniquely dangerous situation. I don't I don't really think that's true. That's There's not a lot of evidence to substantiate that. Certainly not medically advisable, but neither is fighting. Which leads me to another component. If you look at the totality in the year of MMA fights globally, the, all UFC, World Series of Fighting, Bellator, one, every regional show, um, every show in Colombia, every show in Brazil, every show in Argentina, every show in Canada, every show in Russia, every show in in Laos, every show in India. I, I can go on and on and on. How many weight cutting deaths were there? Per, you know, as a proportion of the amount of fights that took place, um, what a couple? Let's say a handful, less than a handful. Um, how many incidents related to hospitalization were there? Now, that's probably a much higher number. I am not here to argue that weight cutting is not a big deal. I am not here to argue that weight cutting does not deserve serious consideration. And I am certainly not here to argue that weight cutting should just be go on as normal. But if you're looking at statistically all the things that can send a fighter to the hospital pre and post fight, so concussion, laceration, broken bone, weight cutting failure, Weight cutting is going to be very low on that list. It's going to be low on that list. So when you statistically have that kind of level, I don't understand how a sweeping change done without the permission or done without any kind of concert or consultation of the fighters and their realities um, is going to be okay. Again, this is just my immediate reaction. In a month, I might feel differently. Hell, in a week, I might feel differently. Um, you know, you talk to someone like Andy Foster, who's a real big believer that weight cutting is a serious problem and needs to be addressed. Okay, man, I would never want to. I would never want to uh, undercut. The, you know how much he's trying to do for fighters and for fighting. But statistically speaking, with the amount of fights that take place in a calendar year. And the amount of deaths that result from this. I don't want to be one of these guys who looks at this and says, well, you, you know, five, five or six high school football players die every year. Yeah, it should be zero. It should be zero that die from weight cutting too. I am saying something should be done about it. What I am not saying is, and what I, something should be done about it. What I'm dubious about is what mechanisms they have in place to enforce this, under what contractual right they have to enforce this, whether all of these measures are required to make this work, whether some weight cutting under the supervision of a new, I mean, if you're a fighter out there and you can afford for a world-class nutritionist like George Lockhart, why shouldn't you be allowed to cut, cut, cut weight? Why? I don't understand that. You know, uh, up to a certain point, you can maybe argue, why can't those guys get waivers? What's so dangerous if you're a, if you walk around at 200 pounds, and you lose weight dieting, let's say down to 190, 187. Um, 
Oh, not even the whatever. You get down to one ninety dieting. Why can't you cut five pounds under his supervision? I don't understand what the problem with that is. That to me seems like like anything else, a risk, fairly manageable, fairly negligible risk. And this does not allow for that. And again, they're operating in a different environment. They're trying to grow their business into territories that are going to be apprehensive about um, the safety of it. And so I guess I understand what they're doing. But that to me makes it about preserving the brand with fighter health as a secondary and ancillary consequence. That is not, oh my God, we've got this scandal on our hands. We need to take care of fighters. Forget about our business. Whatever weight cutting policy they're going to institute, it's going to be, of course, to make sure that these guys don't suffer the deleterious effects of weight cutting in conjunction with let's make sure our business can still thrive. And that's understandable. They have to take care of their business. But let's just be clear about the terms of what's happening here. So, look, I, have, I don't have any hard and fast rules about this. My first look at this, and again, my first look at this is very much, I got a lot of questions about it. But I also just think, again, if people are dying from weight cutting, you should do something about it. But beyond the deaths, how damaging is weight cutting to the sport on an annual basis? Um, I know a lot of these reports of guys having bad things happen to them are popularized, and there's a plenty of evidence to suggest that it's a, a problem worth tackling. Does it require this, this amount of pushback, especially without done with consultation of any fighter? A, a, a light heavyweight fighter should be able to cut 10 pounds if you have a certified nutritionist helping you. I don't really don't see what the problem with that is. That's not a problem worth legislating over. I think that's my issue. You've got this sweeping changes. Do you need to legislate every single kind of change? Maybe for their particular circumstance, they do. Maybe, maybe so. But um, I would very much be against the UFC trying something like this. I'd be very much against the UFC doing nothing but I'd be against this. There was another comment from a guy who I used to train with. Um, they called him Final Destination because <laughs> he was such a tough guy that if you got like if you got a takedown on him, like he would turn into Final Destination and murder you. But uh, he was a state champion wrestler, I think, in high school. He's a heavyweight. Here's his, and he's a pro fighter now. Here's his response. He goes, "I'm sure one felt like they had to do something after they just had a fighter unfortunately pass away leading up to their last event." I actually don't mind this too much as it seems pretty similar to the certification system in wrestling. In wrestling, you meet with a doctor at the beginning of the season and the doctor tells you how much you are allowed to cut for that year. The problem with the system is that promotion and or commissions only has control over the fighters for as long as they're under contract or licensed. That means if a fighter needs a last-minute opponent, then the pool of fighters drops to only those who are also under contract and or licensed by the same commission, or else the new fighter would not have been subject to the same level of monitoring, possibly creating a competitive imbalance or the perception of a lack of fairness. Will it, quote, ban weight cutting by dehydration, as it says in the headline? No. Going back to the wrestling example, wrestlers are known to do extreme things to make weight. Also, wrestling has same-day weigh-ins, but that's an entirely different point. The bottom line is this. No matter where the rules makers draw the line, the competitors, who are by very nature very competitive, will find ways to walk right up to the line with many having their toes align across the line, uh, which I think is a very astute comment. So look, here's what I'm going to say. Let's see how it all plays out. Let's, to some extent, give them the benefit of the doubt because listen, if it winds up having these you know, revolutionary, uh, revolutionary uh, effects where it has uh, tremendous benefit for the entire roster, well, then you know, I'll have to just say I was wrong and resend these arguments. 
But I'm always going to be wary of a promotion doing something to benefit itself, whether or not it, you know, it, it fully benefits fighters. I mean, there's obviously some benefit to fighters here, um, but enough. Is this too much? Is this too little? Is it just the right amount? It's really too early to tell. It's worth monitoring. And I'm going to say this one more time. This is just my initial impression. This requires thought. This requires thinking things through. This requires time to really grasp the impact. All I'm telling you as I speak to you right now on the 23rd of December, 2015, is just my initial impact, my initial thoughts on this. So uh, Diet Soda says, thank God some org is doing this. I'm sick of people saying it can't be done as if we were talking about sending a man to Mars. Really? Tell me how Rich Franklin was saying they have to go from Vietnam to Myanmar to uh, China to the Philippines. You mean to tell me they're going to randomly test these guys? They're just going to fly to Cambodia and test a bunch of guys? No, you're not. You're going to have these guys upload on a web portal each day their daily weights. How can you possibly trust that? What if half these guys have been lying about and they show up and their gravity is all messed up? You're just going to cancel the card? Come on, man. What are we talking about here? They can write what they want on a piece of paper or on a, on a website. Whether or not they can actually enforce these things in a real way to actually make substantive change is a completely different matter. Having a kid on a college campus, knowing his schedule, knowing where he lives, knowing who his roommate is, knowing his meal plan, knowing his schedule, seeing him all the time, that is a very easy thing to keep in charge. That, that actually, that's hard to do already. But that's much, much easier than some guy living in Myanmar, one living in Cambodia, one living in Vietnam, a couple living in China, one living in this part of China, one living in that part of China, and we're just going to upload all our stuff. By the way, where do you get the authority to do this? Come on, man. This is not the same at all. It's not sending someone to Mars, but there's a big difference between this is very easy and sending someone to Mars. There's a lot of in-between. And again, of course, people are like, hey, here's an organization getting tough on weight cutting without ever considering what it might mean or whether who's supposed to be benefiting from this. If you think that if you think this is charity on the part of one FC or one championship, if you think this is just them saying, you know what, if this kills our business, then it kills our business, then you're a fool. This is not some altruistic thing to do. If they really were so altruistic, they would have done it before. Yes, I don't think they're trying to hurt fighters. And yes, it's about, you know, uh, it's okay for a business to try to preserve itself. But understand, like, you can't have this conversation about what these weight cutting policies without talking about to what extent is this about preserving the brand as they try to break into burgeoning markets. And to what extent does that really cast doubt on the efficacy of some of these rules? Let's go to the Twitter machine. It's now 2.15. One says, there's a growing literature on weight-cutting effects on things you listed, including concussions and injuries. I am well aware of it. If you don't believe in guys getting KO'd and not recovering, how do you explain Dos Santos, Maynard, and Lioto? Uh, well, Maynard actually may not be the best example, but Lioto certainly is. What is this? Someone sending me Conor McGregor shirts like I care. What is the single fight you most want to see be made in every division in 2016? Oof. 
I can't answer that one. That one is just too many. But let me say this. The fight I'm looking forward to most, Cruz versus Dillashaw, baby. Can't wait. Can't wait. Forrest Griffin was a top guy when Anderson fought him. I know. Was the champ right before. I know. Exactly. All my point. Nate Diaz is very analogous. Doesn't have the, the, the belt around his waist in any kind of way, but just be the, what, top five guy? Seems perfectly reasonable to me. Uh, please name some of your personal favorites. MMA journalists, all my peers at MMA Fighting, and MMA podcasters. Uh, Shout-outs to Co-Main Event Podcast. I listen to them a lot. Uh, who won the first round of Simon versus McCrory? I don't know. I have to go watch it again. Can you incorporate other accents when describing Donk fans next year? I'll try. What's the worst repetitive question you get? Um, how many champions will lose their title next year? I don't know. Uh, Rogan says that Connor versus Diaz is the fight to make for big money. Are you interested? Of course. Uh, with respect, Luke, I think we still need to see McGregor face a smothering grappler. I believe uh, uh, Zane Simon has noted that Team Alpha Male fighters don't hold guys down and pound them for five rounds. They don't, but who's that smothering grappler at at at, um, at uh, featherweight? Llamas? Okay, make the Llamas fight. But, um, you know, that doesn't seem... I, I don't like Llamas' chances too much. Who impressed you more on their UFC debut? Kowalkowicz or Shevchenko? Shevchenko, for sure. Her balance in the clinch was outrageous. And she she looked like she's very strong physically. Favorite moments from MMA in 2015. Um, the overall 189 card, Conor McGregor walking out to Sinead O'Connor, got to be a top moment. Holmes knockout, got to be a top moment, or a knockout of Rousey. Um Rousey's armbar, uh, was that 2015 of Zingano or was that 2014? I can't even remember anymore. Let me go to uh, the, the Betch knockout was not one of my favorite moments of 2015, if I'm being honest. Um, let's see. Rousey Zingano was 2015, so that I would include. Dos Anjos coming to life against uh, Anthony Pettis. Um, what else? Johnson versus Cormier was big. Um, Verdun's guillotine. I'm trying to think of some other ones that really caught my attention. Um, there's no Bellator moment that I can speak of that really uh, sort of you know magnificent in that way. Um, Cormier versus Gustafson was crazy. Um, those are just a few. Luke, are you glad that you lived long enough to be in a world where Chewy is a top trending baby name? Yes and no. Luke, do you give any credence to Rhonda's claim that Holly hit her early and stunned her and she wasn't able to react and therefore lost? Absolutely. I, I have had many conversations with fighters off the record where they have said exactly the same thing. They've never there's there's been a number of fighters you love out there that have told me I, I got hit early and can't remember the rest of that fight even though you see him out there doing all that stuff that is so much more common than you think it is way 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 more common 
for Rousey to say that, I mean, I don't know if it's true, but I absolutely think that there's a very legitimate shot that is true. Uh, Connor should do a show similar to uh, LeBron James, The Decision, where he announces his next opponent. The decision was good for media, so sure, why not? Stop hating on Apple and drink the Kool-Aid. So I have only Macs in my house, but I have only Android devices because Android devices are better than iPhones. iPhone fans don't understand that, but it's true. But Mac laptops and Mac computers are better than anything uh, in terms of the PC world. Not, not if you can make your own or at the very, very high level, but for the average consumer, Macs are better. Uh, I think Mighty Mouse's popularity has gone up with Twitch and being on Joe's podcast. We'll see about that after the next pay-per-view. A lot of wrestlers and strikers um, What? Since Maya has been training a lot of wrestling, is he the first wrestler jujitsu? I don't know what that means. Alright, so let's go back to the top here. says I'm still hesitant to say that Connor has answered the wrestler question. I mentioned this after he fought Mendez. He hasn't answered it in any kind of way where you have um you know that if anyone he faces again has good wrestling that it's not something to consider. But this idea that it's some glaring liability that all one needs to do is get him down a la boy all Anderson Silva uh all Matt Linlin needs to do versus Anderson Silva is get him down on the ground and that's it. It's just this really oversimplified way of looking at his game based on prevailing doubt about a false impression you have of him. It's not to say that someone who has good wrestling and a bunch of other things can't make him pay a little bit, but if you think he's just going to lay on his back on the ground and get his guard passed, get mounted, and get choked out, uh, I don't know about that. I think Edgar can do some work on the ground and maybe make him suffer over a course of a couple of rounds and maybe, you know, uh, submit him late. But um, I think that's a I think that's a very simplistic way of looking at it. How well do you think Connor will do at one fifty five, specifically the top five? Hard to know, but I'm curious to see. This is why I don't want to see him jump to the title because let's say he goes to the title fight. I'm just making up a scenario. Let's see him go to the title fight. Let's say he gets blasted uh, by Dos Anjos, right? Because Dos Anjos look pretty nasty. But okay, whatever. I mean, maybe he doesn't. But let's say for the sake of argument that he does. Then your interest in him going to 155 goes away. You're like, ah, you got kind of wasted by the champ. You know, kind of like what BJ Penn did. After he got beat by St. Pierre that second time, you were like, eh. No one mentioned it, but this is probably reactionary to having a fighter die from the weight cutting. Uh, everyone mentioned that. Let's go to the top here. What's next for Junior Dos Santos? Uh, all the way, also. I have to agree with my, disagree with my colleague Zane. Zane says the answer really seems to be that McGregor is able to be taken down at will when he's focused on striking. 
I am very hesitant to read too much into that Mendez um, fight. I mean, there's some things you want to take from there, but um, there's a lot that I'm a little bit skeptical about. And I also think that McGregor's developing uh, a sense and appreciation for managing real estate fight over fight. Um, if you go back and you listen to McGregor talk about that fight, he was kind of ready to bite down the mouthpiece a little bit in that one. When he's on his feet and he's light, he can move a lot better and get out of the way. Um I mean, yes, if you're more invested in striking than you are mixing things up, you are by definition a little bit more susceptible to being taken down. But to what measurable extent for that, I have very serious reservations about. Do you know what size cage Dillashaw and Cruz will be fighting in on January 17th? Great question. I don't know the answer to that, but we need to find out. Also, what's next for Junior Dos Santos? Man, I don't know. I do not know. That is a very, very tough one. false. Uriah Faber gets the next title shot at Bantamweight. God, he might. I'll just say true for the F of it. Uh, in the next few years, Stage Northcutt becomes second biggest star after McGregor. You know what, man? I was thinking about this the other day. Hear me out. It might be arguable that the best thing that could happen to McGregor what am I saying? The best thing that can happen to Northcutt is that he loses. Because the dude's on a rocket ship right now. And I think most people understand, okay, he's a little prospect-ish. No, he's prospect as hell. He's got a long way to go to put the pieces of his game together. And when I say that, people think, oh, you think you're, what are you saying, he sucks? No. I'm saying that it's one thing to, like, if you really believe he can get very, very good, then even if he's good now, you don't want to stunt the development from A to B. So there's part about stunting um, fully actualized potential. There's, that's one argument. The second argument is you don't want him to take a beating and then not you know, uh, recover in some kind of way. But um, I was just thinking about this, this scenario. If he loses, let's say, a tough fight where he comes out, he looks good, but you know, a little bit technically outmatched, I'm not talking about something like Rose versus Van Zandt, but let's say something not too far from that. I think that'd be good for him. I really do. Because it would slow the roll. It would get him all the prospect fights he needs to get, or at least you know, give him a much better chance of getting the prospect fights he needs to get in the UFC. He would lose before... He would probably lose on a stage smaller than... Um, you know, you don't want to get one of these situations where you get rushed to the top. You're like Nate Quarry and you face... Rich Franklin, he just, you know, again, I know Nate very well. Um, unbelievable fighter, tremendous talent. Probably shouldn't have been in that fight. You know, you can make a case. Uh, you don't want to put Northcutt in a similar kind of situation. You want to get him right pieces at the right time. And um, for me, I just wonder if a, not a devastating loss, not a horrible loss, but, you know, a loss that he deserved, you know, he didn't deserve to win. But uh, nevertheless, give you a few bright spots. I wonder if that would be the best thing for him. I truly, truly mean that. I really, really, a big part of me can't let that go. Um, so to answer your question, I'll say true. But part of me hopes it's false. If Weidman loses to Rockhold, he moves up to light heavyweight. That might be true. Diaz fights St. Pierre if they both come back. I hope not. False. McDonald never fights for a title again. False. Jesus, way too many. Um, 
uh, well, like Kowalkowitz, uh, Brian Stan calls her Double K. After seeing Double K, I'm not writing that name several times. Performance at the Fox show and assumedly having to watch tape, where do you see her ending up in the uh, strawway division hierarchy? Let's see. She's got some stuff to work on, but um, if she can start putting her movement together with her strikes and the variety of the strikes with the movement, look out. Another true false for 2016. Demetrius Johnson versus TJ Dillashaw Dominic Cruz happens. I'll say true. Conor McGregor will be a two-weight division champ, world champion. I have a hard time seeing this. I like McGregor's chances to beat top lightweights. I don't know about that. Um, if for another reason the UFC you know, negotiates that he has to leave one title or another. Uh, so I'll say false. Verdum is the champ by this time next year. I'll say true. Welterweight title changes hands at least two times. You mean in the future ever? Sure. True. Ronda Rousey retires. Oh, in 2016. Um, I'll say false. I don't know why I say false. Sage Northcutt swears for the first time. Are you kidding? False. Kids like Tim Tebow. Good question. Do you think Juliana Pena should get suspended by UFC for her recent assault charges? At this point, there has never been a female fighter with the company that has been held under disciplinary actions for the for assault. If Pena is found guilty, you think the UFC will suspend her or will they not pursue because A, she is a woman, thereby creating a double standard with her disciplinary actions between men and women fighters, or B, because they need her to fill out the roster of bantamweight fighters. Yeah, she's also a potential title challenger too, so um, keep in mind that. Let me just say something about what she did. If you read the report, I've worked at a bar. I've been a bouncer and a door guy in in a number of bars. Um, It's one of my first jobs in college and out of college just to make a couple extra bucks. Um, you know, pumped to the gills on creatine and andro. Um, and it was an easy way to make, um, cause they pay you cash every night. That's how I got paid anyway. Um, if someone did that to me where the bar is closed and you try to come in and get in because your friend needs medical assistance, what I would do is I would call for medical assistance. I would not let you into the bar when the bar is closed the bar is closed and I'm not letting in some stranger to fix that situation ever, ever all. You don't know what you're doing when you bring in someone like that. When the bar is closed, the bar is closed. So for her to kick those two people and it sounds all funny. Oh, she kicked them in the balls. Yeah. Hee haw. Um, I completely support the bar staff and not letting her in. I would never, ever let someone in under those conditions. Now, I was a jerk job. If you came at me with uh, a fake ID, I'd either confiscate it or I would spit tobacco juice on it and hand it back to you. So I had some anger issues. Um, but certainly I would not let you in under those conditions ever. Just, it's, just not, it's just not happening. Um, so I don't know what her legal defense is going to be, but to me, she is absolutely in the wrong. Now, I like Juliana Pena. Maybe she was drunk. Maybe she wasn't thinking. Maybe she just lost her emotions for a while. People make mistakes. I understand that. So I'm not asking that she get prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. In the end, if everyone's okay, then I I would rather see that she be able to go on and continue her career. I'm just saying who's in the right in that situation? The bar staff, completely. As for what the UFC is going to do, you guys know how this works. Um, Your value to the promotion, which can be both as a title contender as a visible name, as someone with some star power, um, that defines your justice. So what they're going to do, I don't know what they're going to do. I really don't. 
Um, I hesitate to speculate because justice is so uneven. But if you're wondering if she might get some benefits that others might not, you're probably going to be right because that's just the way justice works. Um, we have to go. I'm over time. Come here, Barbus. Come here, buddy. Come here. Come here. No, don't lay down. Come here, dog. Here we go. Here's Barbus for 2016. Say hi, buddy. <laughs> he likes it when you scratch under his chin. Yeah. All right. So for Barbus, uh, thank you so much for watching this chat. I greatly appreciate it. You guys are the best. Merry Christmas. Do me a favor. I love to get sauced and chill in the cut, but I don't drive when I get sauced. Don't drink and drive. Call an Uber, call a cab, call a friend, walk if you have to. I mean, that's not a very safe thing. I don't know. Do something. Just don't drink and drive, okay? Stay safe over the holiday weekend. Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah to all the Jewish friends out there and Kwanzaa as well. Whatever it is you celebrate or don't, um, enjoy some time off with some family and friends. Maybe watch some good football. And um, just know that I'm beyond appreciative that you watch this. And uh, give it a thumbs up. And I'll see you next time. Follow me on Twitter at SBN Luke Thomas. For Barbus, I'm Luke. Stay frosty. Bye bye.